Ladies and gentlemen, hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino, and on today's episode, I'm going to break down night one of the first round of the Democratic debates. It was an interesting night one on the NBC debate stage. We had a bunch of different moderators, a bunch of different technical difficulties, and a bunch of different candidates. And tonight, hopefully, they'll have the technical difficulties ironed out here. And it'll be interesting to see how Biden, Bernie, Andrew Yang, and a more crowded and more star-studded night two plays out when night one here was fairly punchy and we saw people filling in the space with people who you maybe don't think are going to be dynamic like Tim Ryan and John Delaney. They found ways to show up and assert themselves personality-wise. Now, did they help themselves? That's what we're here to discuss. So in order to discuss that, I've broken this down into three columns, three easy columns. Winners, as in people I think score clear and decisive wins in the debate and will be able to build off of the events of tonight and move on in a strong way. I have people who are neutral. These are people who I thought did some things to help themselves, did some things to hurt themselves, or just didn't do anything at all. So there are a couple people that we'll discuss who are, they did a lot of things, some good, some bad. Other people who maybe were able to keep a low enough profile that they weren't able to hurt themselves or help themselves too much. And then we have the losers. These are people who chirped up and things did not go well for them. You almost had to have chirped up in order to not do well. And I think it's just great for the Democratic Party that we finally have our own answer to Ted Cruz, and that's Bill de Blasio. He's in the loser's column, in case you were wondering. Let's get into winners, though. So, initially, coming out of the debate, I watched it and thought, look, the spotlight's on Liz Warren. This is Liz Warren's night because of the way the two nights were drawn out. You had Biden and Bernie landing on night two, which opened up a nice lane for Liz here on night one. Although, there was the take on the internet that things were actually hurting Liz Warren, that it was actually disadvantageous for Liz Warren to go on night one. I never bought into that. And I thought that though the pressure was on her, she'd be able to distinguish herself. And I think the moment I was envisioning in my head came to pass when Chuck Todd asked that entire field on the stage where they stood on Medicare for all, but specifically ending private insurance in order to get Medicare for all. All right, we're going to turn to the issue of health care right now. I'd really try to understand where there may or may not be daylight between you. Many people watching at home have health insurance coverage through their employer. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Just a show of hands to start off with. All right, well... And two people's hands went up, and it was Liz Warren at the center of the stage, and then over on the wing, Bill de Blasio. And that gave Bill de Blasio a very interesting opportunity, but I'll explain why that didn't work out for him in my estimations here in a little bit. Now, the other person I think was able to score a clear win was Julian Castro. And Julian Castro did it in a different way, although in a similar line as Elizabeth Warren, who came in, she has plans for things. She also has clear policy positions. And Julian Castro showed up, and he is a guy who has clear policy positions. He's well-spoken. He is a young guy. He was the mayor of San Antonio. 
this is a guy who has a lot of the same fundamentals that people like about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, except that in the entirety of the Democratic field, of all 25 candidates, uh, of all the people whose immigration plans I have gone through, I said it, I did an entire episode on it before, Julian Castro's, although I didn't agree with everything on it, that was a serious plan, right? We were there for over an hour discussing Julian Castro's plan in depth. This is a guy who has thought about this, and and he's taken that same level of depth and thought and applied it to issues involving housing, his background in housing and urban development as the HUD secretary. He's a stark contrast to Ben Carson, let's put it that way, right? So Julian Castro was able to really distinguish himself last night, and of course he was doing that by putting the elbows and the forums into my boy Beto's face. Uh, Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge in this country. If you're fleeing fleeing desperation, then I want to make sure sure that you're treated with respect. I'm still talking about everybody else. But you're looking at just one small part of this. I'm talking about a comprehensive rewrite of our immigration laws. And if we do that, that's I don't think not, it's asking that's too much not for true. people I'm to follow about, our laws I'm when they come to this I'm talking about millions country. of folks. A lot of folks that are coming are not seeking asylum. A lot of them are undocumented immigrants, right? And you said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what. Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21, and Title 22 already cover if human trafficking. No I think that you should do your homework we're going on to this make issue. Sure that they're if you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this like section. This now, what might surprise you is I have Julian Castro as the clear winner of the debate, even though I think Liz Warren did really well. And, and here's why. I like what Liz Warren has to say. I think Liz Warren is ready to run up against Donald Trump in a general election. I think Julian still needs to show me a few more things to demonstrate that he'd be able to do that. But I was watching this panel on NBC this morning when I was doing my rewatch of the debate. And I got to tell you, these young voters really opened up my eyes a little bit because now I see what they're looking for in candidates. And let's go across this little panel of voters here um, just to give you a quick summary of the voices you were listening to. On the bottom row, there are three women. Two of them are African-American. One at the end, I believe, is Latino. You go up to the next row. There's a guy from West Virginia. He is someone who earlier in the panel came off to me as someone who is a bit of a moderate or even someone who maybe votes as a Republican. Couldn't really figure out what to make of the guy in the middle here. And the guy on the far left seems like he's kind of liberal, and that's why he's open up to the Democratic Party's answer to Ted Cruz, Bill de Blasio. But let's listen to a little bit of this clip here. Who won tonight in your eyes? We'll start with Valentina and go this way. Um, Julian Castro for actually talking policy. Julian Castro. Castro for the same reasons. Wow. Secretary Castro. Uh, I think Warren actually did a good job, uh, but I do agree. I thought Castro stood out as one of the lesser known candidates. I was actually uh, very surprised by Mayor de Blasio's uh, ideas and his messaging. Wow, so Castro kind of stole the spotlight and de Blasio came out a little bit too. That was a pro-Castro response in order of magnitude above where I was expecting. And I dare say that Castro stole a little bit of Elizabeth Warren's thunder with these younger voters. I think, of course, they're still into Elizabeth Warren. I don't think there's any danger of people going from Liz over to Julian Castro. But I'll tell you this, I think what you are seeing is a very, very strong and intriguing cross-generational 
cross-racial ticket between Liz Warren and Julian Castro, the two people who have serious plans starting to form here, and something that would seriously excite younger voters. And so that's something interesting for both the Castro and Warren campaigns to look at. Now, Warren didn't do bad in my estimations. I just think, you know, Castro benefited from keeping a low profile. No one has been pushing Julian Castro. He doesn't have any media outlet, either in the mainstream or in the alternative media, really pushing for him. So Julian is out there unionizing his campaign, not getting any major love for that, coming out with a serious immigration platform. Not getting any serious attention for that. And so he slides into this debate, ready for action. This guy, Pete Buttigieg, has been stealing a lot of his young mayoral thunder, except that Julian Castro's resume is thicker than Pete Buttigieg. And he's here and ready to razzle-dazzle. And, oh, by the way, there's this other guy from Texas, this better O'Rourke. I think that you should do your homework on this issue. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should appeal. Some say that better O'Rourke is now asking Julian Castro permission to sit down because Julian owns his ass. And I think that is a big part of what resounded with younger voters in addition to the policies. So going back to that NBC panel... I think it's about the policies. They don't want to hear the anecdotes. They don't want the platitudes. And they don't even want the appeals to our better angels or big ideas. And and that cuts in the direction of Cory Booker. But I could see a candidate like Bernie Sanders maybe having some issues with this if he goes too vague. In 2016, running up against Hillary Clinton, who is also trading in vagaries, he was able to trade much more appealing rhetoric that was not always the most specific. I don't think he'll be able to do that same rhetorical flourish this time around to the same effect. And I think that is something that youth voters are attenuated to. But they also want to see that you can go in there and frankly fuck some people up. And Julian Castro went in yesterday and he fucked up Beto O'Rourke. And it's not that Liz Warren needed to go in and fuck somebody up, but at some point she is going to need to throw a few jabs and get a clear win. I mean, we saw this in 2016 too, right? Chris Christie came in and he thrashed up Marco Rubio. And that was a very key moment for Marco Rubio's campaign. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily help you. In the case of Julian Castro, it did. But it is important if you're going to stay alive to show that one, you can throw a punch, and two, that if a candidate is going to come at you and try to throw a punch, they better come at you correctly because you're going to throw a punch back and they run the risk of getting taken down by you. So Julian Castro did the jump a guy in jail when you get into jail move last night, and I thought he did that to great effect. Warren didn't need to do that, but at some point Warren is going to need to be able to tune up a band to handle attackers. I think someone like her and Bernie Sanders, and to a lesser extent Joe Biden, are better positioned sitting back and letting the attacks come in at them rather than going out and seeking the attacks like Julian Castro did. But if you are someone who is on the lower rung of the totem pole and you're looking to move up into that serious conversation, Julian Castro's template, you got to follow it because that is a winning playbook and it's clearly landing with the younger Democratic electorate. But I think it is also landing with a lot of people who are turning on the TV for the first time and going, who's Julian Castro? Whoa, he thrashed up that Beto guy. And that Beto guy seems a little bit cheesy. So let's move on to the neutral column. Cory Booker, 
I am at the top of the neutral pile. He was actually for a while in the winner's column. And then I was watching the NBC panel afterwards. When Cory Booker was talking, I saw a, a couple, like, oh, God, from you guys. So w- w- what were some of those things that, that you weren't so thrilled about? Uh, when Beto spoke Spanish. You didn't like Initially, didn't like I don't want to say I didn't like it, but I think it, like, caught some people off guard. And you could see even some of the other candidates were a little... Uh, shaken up by that, so I thought that was Booker's expression is, is yeah. trending all over yeah. t- Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I think just as the Spanish speaking went on, I thought that it was great when Beto did it the first time, but then as it continued on with the multiple candidates, I felt like, especially with Booker, it kind of felt like pandering. Um, for mm. some reason, it just didn't feel as genuine coming from him. And I just feel like any moments that didn't feel as genuine coming from the candidates, when we talked about like identity politics, when Booker kept talking about his neighborhood mm-hmm. repeatedly um, in kind of the same fashion, um, I felt like that was an eye roll moment for me. And let me just put it this way. If Cory Booker is ringing a little bit hollow for African-American voters, I'm going to believe them when they say something's missing for them. And that's probably a thing that is not landing with other voters across that important demographic for Cory Booker to procure the nomination. So I think Booker did miss the beat a little bit, and I think he was off to a fine start initially when he gave the cockeyed stare to Beto O'Rourke when Beto O'Rourke launched into Spanish. He was articulating with his face what a lot of us were feeling at home. But then, Cory Booker himself launched into Spanish, and I don't think that was the right call. Amy Klobuchar had an okay showing. I wouldn't say it was good. She's another person, though, if you want to make the argument to me that she did good for an establishment candidate, I'd go, okay, but what the hell was all of this, quote, I'm not the establishment candidate business then. I mean, yes, the establishment has not gravitated towards you yet, but it's not for lack of trying, it's just for lack of interest. But with all of that said, I think what Amy Klobuchar probably did last night was increase her name mentions in the conversation for vice president if the establishment gets a candidate that they like maybe someone like a pete Buttigieg. i don't know how establishmenty he is but certainly someone like cory booker and amy klobuchar that does feel like a ticket that the establishment would feel fairly confident rolling out and a ticket i have my doubts could win the white house jay inslee Now, Jay Inslee did the right amount of stuff last night if you want to end up where Julian Castro ended up last night. Julian Castro did a lot of things. Jay Inslee was trying to get in there. He was trying to mix it up. He was inserting himself into the conversation. He certainly was memorable. However, he also stuck his foot in his mouth a number of different times throughout the debate, in addition to doing some good things. So the best thing he did, in my opinion, and this is probably not a good thing, was his closing statement. I say it's not a good thing because by the time we get to closing statements, people have already made up their minds on how they feel about all of these candidates tonight. Not forever, and they're certainly open to revisit how they feel about these candidates at the next debate, but they've made up their mind probably about 60 to 75 minutes into each one of these debates. And it's going to be the exact same tonight, and it'll be the exact same a month from now. It's not that you'll have made up your mind on these candidates forever, it's just you'll see where they're at that night. And also, it's my experience that candidates like to get punchy earlier on in the debate as part of their set piece of offense that they're rolling out that night. 
and towards the end of the debate, they are in a prevent defense mode, just trying to get to the finish line, having successfully executed the set offense, and trying not to make any mistakes. This is a really good time to catch candidates off guard, just as a piece of debate strategy. It doesn't usually get taken like that, but if I was one of these undercard candidates, I'd be looking at mixing it up, because again, Julian Castro showing that you need to be a little bit aggressive, and a little bit unorthodox and a little bit ready to take it to someone who appears to be a little bit weak and better work certainly fit into that template. Now with Jay Inslee, Jay Inslee, he talked about passing a law on women's rights and that probably rolled past a lot of people as just, okay, that's just a comment. That struck me as a little off and here's why. When you're the governor of a state, you sign things into law. When you're in the state legislature, you work to pass that law. So the bill gets passed, and then it gets signed into law by the governor. That's, you know, I'm just a bill from Schoolhouse Rock. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. If I was Jay Inslee, I would have been leading right from the onset on climate change. And I really would have brought it home on this climate change question. So he gets asked this climate change question by Rachel Maddow, and this is after he's trying to go, I really need my time. I really want to get my spotlight. And I'm like, okay, let's see what you got, Inslee. And he wants an elite-level climate change question. And we had Julian Castro just a moment ago sit in the bar with Section 1325. So people want detail. I saw current affairs say that detail is a little boring for voters. Apparently not. No, voters like this detail because it shows that you actually know what you're talking about. It also gives us a metric with which to hold you accountable. If you fail to actually address the thing in Section 1325, then we can bring that back up in the future and sound like we know what we're talking about and also have a clear metric a clear transaction that we want out of these candidates. So with Inslee, he gets asked, what are you going to do for Miami to address climate change? How are you going to fix climate change for Miami and the impacts of climate change? And if you live in Florida, the right answer here has to involve something involving red tide. For those of you who are not familiar with the red tide problem in Florida... From the WLRN studios at the Miami Herald, I'm Christine DiMatte. A so-called dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico could be one of the largest on record this year. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA for short, said this week heavy spring rain over the Mississippi River sent tons of pollution into the Gulf. The Mississippi drains 37 states, or about 41 percent of the United States. This year we had a really high discharge, so just from a volume sense that brought in a lot of nutrients into the Gulf of Mexico. That's NOAA oceanographer David Schurer. He said it's not yet clear whether this year's dead zone will ignite the kind of algae blooms that decimated Florida's southwest coast last year. It is something that we will try to monitor. This is a atypical year given the really high discharges, so you know it, it would be something to keep an eye on. The zone is forecast to spread across 7,800 square miles. That's an area roughly the size of New Jersey. And I was a little surprised to not hear that coming out of Jay Inslee's mouth. However, again in his defense, Jay Inslee's plan on climate change really is the Green New Deal taken from the bong rip to the actual pen and paper. This is the real idea and the real rubber meets the road. 
Tulsi Gabbard. Now, I know those of you who have been listening to this show know that I don't think very much of Tulsi Gabbard's politics. But putting that to the side, I think that Tulsi Gabbard had a strong debate performance, generally speaking. However, she did have a key flub. So let's get to that before we get to the strong points here. Congresswoman Gabbard, we're going to move here. One of the first things you did after launching your campaign was to issue an apology to the LGBTQ community about your past stances and statements on gay rights. After the Trump administration's rollbacks of civil rights protections for many in that community, why should voters in that community or voters that care about this issue in general trust you now? Let me say that there is no one in our government at any level who has the right to tell any American who they should be allowed to love or who they should be allowed to marry. My record in Congress for over six years shows my commitment to fighting for LGBTQ equality. I serve on the Equality Caucus and recently voted for passage of the Equality Act. Uh, Maybe many people in this country can relate to the fact that I grew up in a socially conservative home held views when I was very young that I no longer hold today. Uh, I've served with LGBTQ service members, both in training and deployed downrange. I know that they would give their life for me and I would give my life for them. It is this commitment that I'll carry through as President of the United States, recognizing that there are still people who are facing discrimination in the workplace, still people who are unable to find a home for their families. It is this kind of discrimination that we need to address. But it's not enough. It's not enough. If I can add to this, it's it's very important because this is not enough. Look, civil rights is some place to begin. But in the African-American civil rights community, another place to focus on was to stop the lynching of African-Americans. We do not talk enough about trans-Americans, especially African-American trans-Americans, and the incredibly high rates of murder right now. We don't talk enough about how many children, about 30% of LGBTQ kids, who do not go to school because of fear. It's not enough just to be on the Equality Act. I'm an original co-sponsor. We need to have a president that will fight to protect LGBTQ Americans every single day from violence. Thank you, Senator Booker. Now, I think where she did well is she sparred with Tim Ryan, who she sniffed out as vulnerable. I don't know if it was the plan for her to go after Tim Ryan during the course of that debate, if that was who the Gabbard campaign prepared to go after, but they certainly took advantage of Tim Ryan. And Tim Ryan got caught really flat-footed. He had that noticeable flub on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and he really should have just said Osama bin Laden was behind 9-11 or just kept it at terrorism and been kind of vague about it, but when he went specific, that gave Gabbard to correct him on really a name. It's an important distinction. It is also a small distinction, so I'm sort of on both sides of the fence on that. This is a debate, though, man. It's blood sport, and so good on Gabbard for getting those points. I think people will be interested in seeing and hearing more from Tulsi Gabbard. However, there remains this cloud on the horizon of her Hare Krishna faith and the Science of Identity Foundation and guru Chris Butler. And I bring this up again and again because a guy named Barack Obama had a candidate. 
And I keep bringing this up because when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, Jeremiah Wright, who was a preacher that Barack Obama went to during his adulthood for not that long, became a major sticking point during the campaign, especially in electability country. And that was over things that Jeremiah Wright just said. Guru Chris Butler has said in numerous questionable things. Go and get on YouTube and look up Science of Identity Foundation and Guru Chris Butler. I'm not even going to cherry-pick clips of Chris Butler. Do your own homework on this if you're really that interested in it. It's going to be a problem for her, especially in electability country. So I think that Tulsi Gabbard won't be able to outrun that train if she's able to even get far enough down the tracks. Now, let's move to losers. In order to end up in the losers column, you had to do something that actively hurt your campaign without being able to do effective damage mitigation in order to get you over to neutral. And I think that was the case in all four of these candidates. And if you've been following along here, you already know that it's de Blasio, Delaney, Tim Ryan, and Beto. But you're probably intrigued who's the real caboose of the pack here. So let's get into the best of the worst. I guess it's John Delaney. I I guess. I'm kind of tossing up between Bill de Blasio and John Delaney. This is my second pass in this section here, and the first time I did de Blasio. But I'm going to make the case for Delaney this time. I've talked myself out of it. John Delaney, you are the best loser, and here's why. John Delaney didn't say anything awful last night. The big issue is that John Delaney is talking this game of moderatism that is very boring, has no sizzle to it, there's no signature defining policy for John Delaney. You know more what John Delaney is against inside of the Democratic Party than what he's necessarily for, and he's not even really distinguishing himself as the impeachment guy. And I was kind of expecting one of these lower-rung guys to just go all-in on impeachment, not because it was necessarily going to be the winning ticket to the nomination, but a way to win the night would be to move the conversation effectively to impeachment and be the leader of the pack on that conversation, a conversation that some of the senators are not necessarily itching to have outside of Elizabeth Warren. Like Booker and Klobuchar, they're not looking to have that conversation. And Gabbard is someone who maybe doesn't want to talk about voting for impeachment either. So it's kind of looking for a candidate like a de Blasio. That would have been a different strategy for de Blasio to have employed. But certainly someone like John Delaney, if you want to be a moderate, but you also want to be like a moderate who stands up for the Constitution type of moderate, that would have been a lane for Delaney. And instead, he came out and was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, with the U.S. healthcare system. And there are a lot of things that I hear people describe the U.S. healthcare system as, but not broke and not worth fixing are not descriptors that I usually hear bandied about. So that definitely landed Delaney in the loser's column. Now, Bill de Blasio, why did I, in this second pass at this section, decide that de Blasio was a bigger loser than John Delaney? And that's saying something. 
I think it's because of that Ted Cruz, the Democratic Party moniker. He really cemented that for me last night. I went in having no real opinion of Bill de Blasio other than I had been seeing conservatives murf, murf, murfing over Bill de Blasio, but I didn't really make too much of that. I just thought that that's something that coastal conservatives joke about when you live in New York City and you're a Republican, but you also hate yourself, so you live in a very, very blue city and complain about how things are so blue in the place that you live without actually moving yourself to someplace that would be redder because all the jobs that you want are actually in the blue city, so how bad is the blue city anyways? I know that's a mouthful, but Bill de Blasio seems like I know, I know, that's a mouthful. But Bill de Blasio seems like classic cannon fodder for the class of people who totally fit into that. And most of them end up in high-profile jobs, working for publications and putting out tweets all day. Bill de Blasio, however, is like Ted Cruz. And, And what do I mean by that? Now, I say Ted Cruz, and you think probably something like Worm Man in suit. You maybe have like a visceral kind of disgust, cringy revulsion thing when I say Ted Cruz. I just like Ted Cruz so much that I was willing to give Better O'Rourke, who I was not razzle-dazzled by, but I thought was a viable vehicle, money to go and beat Ted Cruz in a red state because it's worth beating Ted Cruz, and it was worth having that Senate vote, and it's going to be worth having that Senate vote for whoever the next president is, but that's a different discussion for another time. But when conservatives look at Ted Cruz, when Republicans look at Ted Cruz, I get this all the time in the state, you know what they see? They see a fighter. They see a principled guy. They see someone that they kind of like. The whole thing where Ted Cruz got clowned by Donald Trump and Donald Trump called his dad a murderer and said that his wife was a fat pig. No. The whole thing where he goes up and awkwardly quotes Princess Bride and even does stuff that, you know, that crowd would describe as a feat theatrical, bombastic, maybe not alpha male They don't see it with him. They see an ideological fighter. They see someone who sings the song that they want to hear, and he's for real skis. And I see someone who is very cynically telling them what they want to hear. And that is exactly what I see with Bill de Blasio. I see this guy as, yeah, he's singing the song. No, he's talking a good game. When Chuck Todd asked everyone last night, are you in favor of real, no bullshit Medicare for all? Elizabeth Warren raises her hand, distinguishes herself from the pack, wins the debate outright right there. I like Castro, but man, M4A, pure M4A, that matters, um, at least to me. Um, So it certainly is a deciding point when I'm looking at Castro and Warren, who do I like more? But if you like Castro because of the immigration thing, I get it, man. I get it. That's a respectable thing. He's, He's a good progressive. Bill de Blasio shoots his hand up. He establishes a lane for himself. But then he goes after the John Delaney's of the world, and he's not able to make clear hay on it. Now, part of it is that Delaney got a huge, huge, huge moderator bailout after Delaney volunteered that if it ain't broke, don't fix it line with regards to the American healthcare system. A a thought that I I can't stress enough is really only shared by John Delaney and maybe John Delaney's brother, if indeed he does have a brother. But Bill de Blasio was not able to make real, meaningful, clear hay with that. Now, it's worth noting, however, that you go back to that focus group, 
Bill de Blasio landed with one of the guys on that focus group. That was a clear surprise to me. So maybe Bill de Blasio and his playing of the song, especially for people, and I don't mean this to be a jerk, but I really don't have a nicer way of saying it, who are maybe a little more politically dilettante-ish, they don't follow this stuff super closely, maybe they tune in, hear Bill de Blasio say, Medicare for all, no bullshit, I'll be good on this, that, the other thing, corporations are fucking up your life, and they go, well, I'm a progressive, this guy seems like the real deal, and don't necessarily do the homework, or don't look at the other field of candidates, because Bill de Blasio is willing to say the big, bold thing, I just don't buy him, and I do think that he exudes a certain unlikable energy about him. Him, that I know connected with that one dude on the focus group, but I have a sneaking suspicion rubs even more people the wrong way. Now we move on to Tim Ryan, who I think is very clearly in Oompa Loompaville. I don't like the look of it. For those of you who do not listen to the show regularly, is defined as the place where you go when I don't like the looks of things. And I don't like the looks of things for Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan really shot himself in the foot last night with this line about the shape of the Democratic Party. We have got to change the center of gravity of the Democratic Party from being coastal and elitist and Ivy League, which is the perception, to somebody from the forgotten communities that have been left behind for the last 30 years to get those workers back on our side. Now, I know that I am one who says, and I will still say, that we've had a little bit too much New Yorkification of American politics over the last five to six years, and maybe if we could ramp that down a little bit, that'd be great. Thanks. But Tim Ryan saying coastal and illegal, uh, whoa. Okay, no. And I mean, I guess this is, of course, the distinction between the Midwesterners when they say we've had a little bit too much New York and people from Texas and border states who have said we've had a little bit too much New York. The idea being that people from New England, people from New York, which is not part of New England, by the way, if you don't follow these sorts of things, but people from that part of the country, they're maybe not the people who know best how to deal with issues along the southern border, and maybe just maybe a Democrat from Texas might be someone to consult at minimum when it comes time to come up with a plan for the border for Texas. Just an idea. So Tim Ryan threw out this coastal and illegal line, and that was also in the mix with his line about not white, not black, not man, not woman, all this unity rhetoric, which sounds good, but also sounds like the 2020 update to I don't see color. And I think Tim Ryan, you know, he had a really nice showing at the Planned Parenthood forum. No, seriously. And I thought he did a really nice job detailing for that audience something that was kind of challenging, but I think is a very important narrative for the Democratic Party to have in our tapestry, which is the transformation from being a pro-lifer to being pro-choice. And Tim Ryan's good on choice. At least he was at that Planned Parenthood forum. He did a very good job exhibiting a template of how to give that conversion narrative at bare minimum, but I also think that he's actually legit on that. But this, this was a disaster, and I dare say 
a candidacy-ending disaster, and that's without getting into his exchange with Tulsi Gabbard, which also went really bad. That went about as bad as Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro. It was very, very one-sided, and Tim Ryan was on the losing end of that exchange and even was trending into kind of mansplaining things to the woman veteran. Not a good look, Tim Ryan. And then last, the caboose, Beto O'Rourke. I mean, where do I begin with Beto? What went well for Beto is probably a better question. And that's why I put him at the end of this list. Well, what did he do well? I think there is one thing that I could say he did well. He made sure to bring his people. Why did that matter? Because he was starting to lose that audience, and they were starting to groan every single time he launched into anecdotes. And he really needed his partisans in the House wooing as hard as they could, if for no other reason than to silence the chattering and the murmuring, which, oh, by the way, because of all those technical errors, was audible on the House mics. So as Beto was going up there and struggling, it was landing in audible ways among that audience. Now, why did he struggle? He struggled because of the anecdotes. People don't want the anecdotes. They don't want the platitudes. And I think that this is something that is very important for candidates on all sides or in all lanes of this race to keep in mind. You need to have policy specifics. Even if it's just policy as aesthetics, um, you, and it can't just be policy as aesthetics, but someone like Liz Warren, she's doing policy as substance, but also policy as aesthetics. Policy is an important aesthetic to actually be able to hit in this race. It's not just about tone. It's not just about hope and change anymore. It's not the Obama-era Democratic Party anymore. Policy matters. And that's why someone like Hillary Clinton would maybe have a hard time in this race with her very boring middle-of-the-road style policies. Beto O'Rourke would be showing up with those sorts of things if he could ever stop telling anecdotes. And I guess he thinks that the number one problem in America is that we face a deficit of O'Rourke stories. And and if that is the case, then my goodness, Beto O'Rourke is the man for the job. He has met people and he wants to tell you about them. But he gets challenged by Julian Castro on Section 1325, and the notable thing for me on that and why he lost that exchange so badly is that he couldn't even say why Julian was wrong on Section 1325, and he couldn't even say we're the Democratic Party, we're not the Republican Party, we're both from Texas, I'd love to work with you on this. That's actually a really great way to do this. Hug him close and make Julian have to be the bad guy, even after after Julian scores all of these points. But instead, Beto just stood there and Beto took it. And I think that that was a real disastrous move for Beto. And that was a bad move for Beto. Also, you have these instances of Beto's big platitudinal Obama-esque rhetoric getting himself into trouble with the fact-checkers. PolitiFact comes back right after this debate, and when Beto O'Rourke says that Purdue has faced no consequences for them being a part of this major opioid crisis, I get the note that he's trying to play there. He's trying to say that pharmaceutical companies have not been held sufficiently to account on this matter, and he's right on that. But that's not the same thing as there have been no penalties for any of these pharmaceutical companies. It's just simply not the case. And so, again, we're seeing Beto O'Rourke 
the big rhetoric, the platitudinal approach, it just all feels very out of step for where the national electorate is. It might have worked in Texas, and it certainly works okay against an opponent like Ted Cruz, but whatever it is, it's not working now. And I think Beto O'Rourke, with this has done enough damage to himself that it's not even advisable at this point for him to leave the race and go home and run against John Cornyn. I think Beto O'Rourke has thrashed himself up pretty good and is going to need to do a dominoes at some point. That's where he's at now. That is going to do it for this installment of Don't Worry About the Government. I will be back yet again tomorrow taping another episode of Don't Worry About the Government, doing another post-debate analysis. I'll be doing this all along the campaign trail. Now is the part of the show which has been ad-free, where I remind you that the show is ad-free, and the way it stays ad-free is by you supporting the show. The model, the business model for this show is that I ask for a buck a show at the end of every one of these podcasts. I hope you enjoy these shows. I hope you're enjoying the Mueller Report. I hope you like the All in the Family podcast. I hope you're enjoying all of this. And if you are, just know that it takes time for me to record this stuff. Obviously, it takes time for me to prepare for each one of these podcasts. And then when we get into the editing room, we do all that post-production. That takes time as well. And all I'm asking for all of that is a bucket show from every listener. So I hope it's worth it to you. I hope that dollar is worth it to you. And for those of you who have committed to the show and who have given a bucket show, I really appreciate that. And you have my thanks. And the way I try to say thank you is, one, I hook you up with the entirety of the All in the Family podcast over at patreon.com slash DWATG. So there is, of course, a Patreon feed for the All in the Family podcast as well. I just one-summed it. You know, people who have been listening to this show long enough, you don't want to buy a billion Novembrino products. I just want you to buy one Novembrino product, please. You know, free samples are great. I love free samples, too. But at some point, I'd love it if you buy something in a store. I'm just saying. But I don't want to, you know, try to hose everyone with, buy this, buy this, buy another thing. Let me upsell you on this and that. I've been in sales jobs. That sucks. But... Buck a show. That's all I'm asking. And if everyone did that, I'd basically just be humming along and reminding everyone at some point in the middle of the show, hey, a buck a show, let's, you know, keep that buck a show thing rolling here. So, just a thing to keep in mind. At C H R I S N O V E M B R I N O is where I'm at. Don't worry.tv is our homepage. The All in the Family podcast can be found at allinthefamilypodcast.com on iTunes, on Stitcher. And a new episode just came out. I've got another one in the can that will be coming out in the not-so-distant future if the Democrats ever stop debating things, but it doesn't look good. Bye-bye! This time is real I feel it passing through the telephone Yes, you call the FBI.